let me begin by saying thank you for the invitation to come. Um, I look out and I see some of your faces and I remember you from the first trip that you came down to, to Salt Peter. Some of you I remember from the second trip that you came down. Your students are phenomenal and uh, I really enjoyed having them down. They even got to go to the races with me and uh, we got to do some racing. Some, someone asked me back there, are you the racing undertaker pastor? <laughs> As if there is more than one and so... I am. Uh, I, I do want to say one thing before I get going, and that's this, that your, your pastor is a good friend to me. In the hardest times of my life, he's been there, and um, I'm thankful for him. He's theologically precise. He is caring, and um, I like being around him. Don't you? Okay. Now, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalm 16 is what we'll look at today with God's help. While you're turning there, uh, or um, turning on your Bible, I would like to read a text from the New Testament, maybe to... uh, Put us into some perspective before we begin. Are you in Psalm 16? Okay. Let's listen to the word of the Lord from Luke's gospel, chapter 10. While they were traveling, he entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word, and what we ask you to do now, Father, is to make it live by your Spirit. Would you plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us for your glory? What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the glory of your great name we pray. Amen. How would you describe your life if you were forced to be completely honest with someone and they said... Inside of you, in your heart and in your mind, in your innermost thoughts, describe your life. What's it like in your mind? What's it like in your heart? Not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, what is it like? Let me give you a few choices that you can jot down if you want to. Would you describe your life 
as busy. It's full. No matter where you turn, there's always something to do. And, and this keeps you going and motivated. Is your life hurried? Not only is there, are there things to do, but there's deadlines to meet. And it seems like everyone wants something and they want it now. Or would you describe your life as anxious? Anxious as you are sitting and thinking about the future and what you're going to say or what you're going to do. And that situation hasn't even came yet. That's being anxious. Or are you wishful? All the time wishing for something else. Or do you live your life full of regret? Regretful. Thinking about the past, thinking about something back in your closet, in your memory that haunts you to this day. Do you regret that one decision that you made? That, that one thing you did that affected more than just you? And now it's looming and you're regretful. Or are you jealous? Do you use social media as a platform to judge how you uh, stack up to the people around you or the people not even around you? Or would you describe your life as tired? I'm just tired. Now, I don't know any of you really well, but I can tell by looking at this crowd that some of you are saying yes on the inside. And if not, well, there's plenty of those things for me. Sometimes I feel tired. Sometimes I catch myself brushing my teeth in the mornings, thinking about what am I going to say to that one person when he or she says this or this or this. That's being anxious. It's, it's me. It's you. It's, it could be any of us at any given time. It's according to what the day's like or what the time is like, what the season of our life is like, what's going on around me. When we read Psalm 16, and we oftentimes think of it as sort of, um, I'm going to date myself a little. Um, you remember the Sears wish book? You remember when it came in the mail, it was all pristine and nice. And you took the wish book everywhere you went, young person. And you would go through there and, you, oh, you had to mark that page because mom might forget that. And you would circle and underline it. And when it came in, you would absolutely wear it out until Christmas time. And then you realized, obviously, mom hadn't been checking out the wish book like you had. It's all the things that you want, but, but the things that you don't have at the present time. And we sometimes come to the scriptures and we think, this is what I want in my life. This is what I want my life to look like. This is what I want my heart to feel like. This is what I want my brain to tell me. But this is the wish book. This is the Bible. It's not really true. No, beloved. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who, who moves in Scripture and plants it in your heart and changes your life. Now... David, in his private prayer, turned public hymn, speaks of the life that he lives. We'll look at it under three main headings. One, he's committed. Two, he's content. And three, he's confident. Uh, someone else 
I heard somewhere along the lines, it might have been Peter, (laughs) use that outline, and I'm just going to borrow it today for us. Is that okay? These three things will be our general heading. All beloved, let me remind you that the promises of God are not listed in a wish book, but that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Now with these general headings, these three markers to get us through the text, we'll look at ten specific descriptors that David gives about his life. And in the end, we'll ask God to make these things a reality in our own lives. Are you ready? Let's begin. Verse 1. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. Notice here that this is the life of faith. How can I say that this is the life of faith? David is praying and he believes that God is his protection. This is the life of faith. Now, beloved, I don't know where you came from or how hard your week has been. I don't know if you're down and out or maybe you are not down and out. But I know this. There were times in my life where I felt like I couldn't pray. There were times in my life where I felt like all hope was lost. But guess what? I still prayed. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God was living inside me, causing me, moving me, helping me to pray. And this is the life of faith. Are you praying? Are are you seeking all your protection in God? This is the life of faith. Now, you've been going through the book of Genesis, haven't you? Well, Salt Peter, we are too. We're a little behind you, but I know this, that you remember uh, that watershed moment in, in Genesis where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right before that, God says, I am your shield, Abram. And so we see this life of faith is actually taking refuge in God and conversing with him, leaning upon him for protection. But I said that first we'll look at the commitment. The life of faith is a life of commitment. Look what verse 2 says. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now this is David, the king. And this is not just David, some punk. (laughs) He's a king. If David says yes, he does this. And if he says no, you're dead. He answers to no one. He's the boss. He's the king. And do you know what he says here? You, God, are my Lord. You, God, are my master. He has a Lord. He has a master. This is the way of faith. And what he is saying here, he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. He expresses his commitment to his Lord and master. Oh, David didn't sing, it's good to be king, like the great theologian Tom Petty. Instead, he says, you are my Lord, you are my master. I answer to you, and he's committed to God. But not only is he committed to God, but he's committed to God's people. Look what it says there. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Underline that in your Bible, the word good, please. David looks past all the royal stuff. David looks past all the things. 
All the things that he has. And he says, you, God, you, Lord, I have nothing good besides you. You are the giver of these things. You are my good. Now, if you're anything like me, oftentimes good gifts come into my life and I get absolutely obsessed with the good gift. And I forget about the one who gave me the good gift. Oh, beloved, it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Things come and go, but the giver of the things never comes, nor does he go. He's always the same. He's consistent from all eternity past. He is the giver of the good gifts. Why is that? He gives you good gifts to point you to him who is ultimate good. Now there's a danger, beloved. David says, I have nothing good besides you. And we have good things in our lives, kids, especially right here after Christmas time. You have all kinds of good things. Now you'll wear them out and your mom will sell them in yard sale come summertime. But right now, they're good gifts, aren't they? Listen closely to me, young person. Those good gifts are meant to point you to a good God who loves you and cares for you. Always remember that. There's a great danger in worshiping the gift rather than the giver. Let us, like David, allow God to use the good gifts to point us to Jesus, the greatest gift. Now, I said that he's committed He's committed his life to God. He's committed to God, his Lord and Master. But also notice in verse 3 that he is committed to God's people. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God will take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. What is he saying here? That the people of the land who are noble, the holy people, God's people, his delight, mark that in your Bible, his delight is in them. These are God's people. And and he has committed himself to God's people. He has not committed himself to the way of the pagans. Not the, the words of the pagans, not the ways of the pagans. No, 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 no. David says, I'm not hitching my wagon up to the people who are of the world. Instead, I've committed myself to my Lord and my master, and I've committed myself to God's people. This is a life committed, we read of here in Psalm 16. Now, David praise, affirming that God has blessed him with himself and his people, and he's committed to him no matter what else anyone does. But don't get it twisted. David's not a life. David doesn't live a life um, that, that is easy or a bed of roses. And he's not living a life that he's suffering through, thinking about, well, one day it'll get better. No, no. This is the life of faith lived day to day, committed to God and his people. But this life of faith is a life lived 
not only committed to God and his people, but also content as well. Look what it says in verse 5. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here, David uses four metaphors that fall under this idea of the blessing that he has received from God. He uses the metaphor of his portion, his cup, the boundary line, and an inheritance. Now, I know that I'm using the CSB, and you're probably using the ESV, correct? And when I'm reading this, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. He's got one of them funny Bibles. But beloved, I, I think that as we go through, you'll, you'll cut me some slack. Thinking under the heading of blessing, he says, God, you are my portion. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce said in his commentary on the Psalms. The word portion can have two meanings. It can refer to one's portion in the land, that is, one's estate or the inheritance. Um, but also, it can refer to one's daily portion of food, a ration. And since it's linked to the word cup in the verse, and since the idea of an inheritance in the land occurs in the next verse, the portion in verse 5 is probably the singer's daily ration of food, by extension, other necessities. It is what we ask for in the Lord's Prayer when we recite, Give us this day our daily bread. It means that we are looking to God for our provisions, Boyce says. And what does he say is his portion? Lord, Master, you are my portion. You are my daily bread. The Lord himself is his portion. It's what he needs to live. Yes, he's committed to God and his people. And he is content with whatever comes. Because he knows that tomorrow when he wakes up, his portion will be God himself. Not only it's his portion, but he also uses the word cup of blessing. In the ESV it says cup. In the time of David, when someone would enter someone else's home, it was a friendly exchange, and they, if it was a friendly exchange, and they were a welcome guest, what they would do is the person of the home would hand the person who is visiting the cup. Uh, Peter and I found ourselves in a hut in Belize. And what was the drink? Yeah, something. Uh, if he can't pronounce it and don't know it, You've, you're really lost if you want me to describe it. I know this. It was in a big jug is what we call down at the house. It was a big jug. And you dip the cup down in. And say, Drink this. And I thought, oh, no. I can't make myself drink this. Well, we'll talk about that some other time. But do you know what they did? Pastor Miguel, he handed me the cup. Here, the cup of blessing. You're in my house. You're with my people. You are one of us. Here's the cup. And this is what David is saying here. Lord, you are my cup of blessing. You have welcomed me in and given me yourself. You hold all my blessings. But not only does he say cup of blessing... 
But it also says in the ESV lines, in the CSB it says boundary lines. Lord, you, it says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Uh, I live on a farm. Uh, You probably can tell that by the way I talk, don't you? I live on a farm. Uh, That farm has been in my family for generations. And in 1985, uh, my father and mother, uh, we lived uh, on the farm in a store, over top of a store in an apartment. Um, the store was downstairs in my grandfather's store. It's, it's where it was like Walmart before Walmart was cool. You could get anything there. You could get, uh, you get a half a beef, you get a hog, you get work clothes, you get whatever. Uh, batteries, whatever you needed. Over top lived my mother and father, myself and my older sister. 1985, while we were in the uh, apartment overhead, the store caught on fire. My dad busted a window out and jumped, and then we jumped into his arms, and we watched it burn down. Lost everything. Home, vehicles, business. Five days later, my grandfather, who watched it burn down at his house on the same piece of property, he died. Three days later, after they buried my grandfather, the well went dry and we had no water. I was a five-year-old kid. I don't remember much about that, but my daddy does. And I remember come wintertime, what happened? That was in July. Come wintertime, my grandfather, he left behind uh, um, all kinds of cattle and hogs, chickens, things like that. My, my father is an undertaker, not so much a farmer. But I remember that winter, every time it snowed, me and my dad, or my dad and I, I should say, would get on the four-wheeler, and we would go because the cows would get out. They never got out when it was sunny. <laughs> cows got out when it was snow. And what my dad would do, he would come and holler for the cattle, and we would go try to drive them around and get them back within the fence, and then my dad would mend the fence. To this day, I can walk around that piece of property, and though it's grown up in some places, I can still run into the fence that my papa put up 60, 70 years ago. What's that got to do with Psalm 16? Well, it says that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Oh, beloved. David says that God has fenced in his life. And he can't go out of bounds. Now, that might not mean much to you. Oh, beloved, but listen. If you've put your faith and hope in Jesus... You can't go too far. That's um, a term we use, uh, you read in your Bible, called predestination. You see, the, the end is determined before the journey ever begins. And guess what? You can trust God completely because he has put up the boundary lines in your life. And though sometimes it feels like you are way close to the edge and things are going out of control, guess what? 
He has put up the fence around your life. And you are not going to fall off the side of the cliff. David says, you're my portion. You're my cup of blessing. And you've put up this fence around my life to hold me close to you. And then he says, you are, or indeed I have, a beautiful inheritance. This is the blessing, the portion, the cup, the boundary lines of life that you will not step out of. And lastly, an inheritance. Do you remember when the tribes were getting the lands? Numbers 18. Do you remember this? And then this group gets this piece of land, and this group gets this piece of land, and this group gets this piece of land. And then you get down and you think, okay, what's this last group going to get? Numbers 18. Here's what it says. Numbers 18, 20. Uh, The Lord told Aaron, you'll not have an inheritance in their land. There'll be no portion among them for you. I am your portion and your inheritance among the Israelites. Now, I don't know how you are here. Peter hasn't told me yet. But I know how they are the saints at Salt Peter Church. If all their cousins got land and they were left out, do you know what they'd do? They'd want to fight. They'd get on Facebook and say, I thought that he thought more of me than this. I thought that they loved me. I, thought, I guess I thought more of them than they thought of me. Now, you ain't going to say amen a bit to that, are you? But deep down inside, if every one of your cousins is getting an inheritance and you're not, what will you do? What we call pitching a fit. Right? And guess what? David says, here's my inheritance. My inheritance doesn't come from my father, Jesse. My inheritance is you, God. This is the blessing. I have a beautiful inheritance. So David is committed to God and his people. And he's content with whatever comes his way. Why? Because God is his portion. God is his cup. He set the boundary lines of his life. He can't get out of those things. He's protected. And guess what? He has something to look forward to. Lastly, we see the life of faith as a life of confidence. Look with me in verse 7. I will bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. The CSB again and the ESV differ on how they translate this portion. The CSB says that in the night when David's thoughts are troubling him, God counsels and guides. While the ESV says that God not only counsels him, but at night David's heart is what instructs him. Well, which is it? I had two semesters of Hebrew. What is it? I don't have any idea what it is. But it's plain to me that God is the one who guides and counsels and instructs the believer. It's God who does it. Oh, beloved, listen close to what I'm telling you. God is active in your life. He is not separate from you. He is, is not somewhere else. Oh, he is with you. He's counseling you, guiding you through his word, by his spirit, instructing you. He's active in your life. And because of that fact, the life of faith is a life lived in confidence. 
Not in your own abilities. David was not confident in, in, in his kingship, in his dynasty. David was confident in his Lord and Master. And he boldly says here, because of these things, I will not be shaken. And verse 9 tells us that, therefore, my heart is glad. You can underline that in your Bible. And my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You'll not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. David says, my heart is glad. My heart is filled with joy. And because of that, I express it and I rejoice. This is why you sing, Christian. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know that he watches me. Not only that, but notice he says there in verse 9, my body rests securely. He's restful, he's joyful, and before him is eternal pleasures. Every time I read Psalm 16, I think about Romans 8, 1. For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have nothing to dread, nothing to fear, nothing out ahead of you. That should cause you to worry. Why? Because God has wiped away your transgressions. When he laid him upon his son. Well. Notice that verses 9 through 11. David is talking about death. Now I'm an undertaker by trade. Tomorrow morning I'll get up and I'll. Or maybe tonight I'm on call. I'll get up and I'll deal with someone who is. In, who is grieving. Who is working on getting out of this horrible stage of grief or is getting ready to enter it and when I talk to people when I go to funerals when I think about death and the majority of the people that I'm around rejoicing and rest and joy these are not the descriptors but it's the words that David is using to describe his life as he is faced with his own mortality. And how did get David get to this point? Boyce says there's only one answer. It was the logic of faith. How did he get to the point to where when he thought about his own death, that he could say, I'm confident in the Lord. It's by faith, beloved. Notice that the first part of the psalm all the way up to verse 10 has a bunch of my's and me's in it. But when you get to 10 and 11, there is you's and yours. And for me and for you, this is the rub of Psalm 16. This life described here is not something that I can make up. It's not something that I can um, pull myself up by the bootstraps and try harder to get. This life of commitment, this life of contentment, this life of, of confidence in God, even in the, the, the end of my life, 
It's not something that I can muster up. It's not something that you can muster up. You can't leave here. You get in your car and you go to your restaurant and you think, yeah, this is what's, this is, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to, I'm going to be committed to God in this church. Tomorrow I'm going to be confident in, in God, though I know that my health is failing. I, I'm going to be content with whatever God has given me, even though I'm surrounded by all these issues. I'm just going to do better. Doing better doesn't help. No. Faith and faith, Adrian Rogers said, was positive thinking. Positive thinking don't get anybody anywhere. Can I get an amen there? Thank you. I told myself I wasn't going to ask for one amen, and here I've done it. Oh, beloved, pulling yourself up is not going to help. No. Because sometimes it feels like the whole rug has been jerked out from underneath you. What will help, Chris? Well, it's described, what this life that's described here is not a life that tries harder, Martha, 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 Martha. It's not. It's a life lived at the feet of Jesus. It's forsaking the life of distractions. The life of overwhelming tasks. The life of constant worry. And the life of things. In order to make the right choice that will not be taken away from you. For some of us, we have been distracted by the work that God has called us to. Luke 10 there, the portion I read This word serve, we get the word deacon from it. It's serving, but with a a ministry flavor to it. Now listen, pastors, deacons, teachers, helpers, we've tried hard to serve. And we've tried so hard that maybe we've forgotten that the one we started serving desires a relationship with his people. And for the others... Maybe it's just that you've gotten off track. You know, the the Bible says it's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's like a thorn that that absolutely the bush that, that chokes out the word. Choked out God's presence in your life. And now you're left with a life full of stuff, but you are absolutely empty. And so what do we do? I told you you can't fix yourself. What do we do? Well, I started bow hunting. I don't know if I should have even said that or not. And I, if, if you have a problem with that, I'm sorry. Uh, I feel like I've stepped over a line maybe. But I started bow hunting, white-tailed deer. Okay? Can I get an amen? Yeah, listen to all the men. A minute ago, it was nothing. Now it's, yeah, amen. <laughs> and with bow hunting, my father-in-law has taught me you know, correct form. Have your feet shoulder width apart. And have your arm straight. And when you come back, don't twist and don't do this, but find an anchor point. And there, you go to your anchor point every time. And when you practice enough, then when you get in the tree or wherever you're at, you'll go right to your anchor point, and that will, that will hold you there. Now, 
I believe that Psalm 16 teaches us to find our anchor point in someone. To find our anchor point that when everything else is going wild, find our anchor point in the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 10 and 11 says, You'll not abandon me to Sheol. You'll not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is the anchor point, beloved. It's a prophecy of the reality that Jesus was not abandoned. Jesus did not see decay. And since Christ was not abandoned in the grave, and because God did not allow him to see decay, because he lives, and you, beloved, are in Christ, you can live the life that is committed, that is uh, content and confident that nothing can stop what God has ordained. John 14, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So the resurrection is the anchor point of your faith. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Him. 2 Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light from the gospel. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is what Paul said to the church there in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Everything around you will tell you that you're too busy to do this and too busy to do that. Your anxieties will tell you you got to keep going, you got to do this, you got to do that. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, she's chosen the good thing. Sit at my feet. Man, I get so sick. Of this new year, new you. Oh, beloved. It's a new year. But he's the same God. And by his spirit, 
us, his people, anchored in an empty tomb on the other side of the world. We will renew our commitment to a God who never changes. May God help us, Risen King Church. May God help us to be content and confident in Him alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm to the deepest whatever. Listen. Slow down. Take a breath. Love your God. Sit at His feet. Young people, sitting at His feet is with your Bible open. Give your life to the church. Be committed to her. Be content with whatever God has out ahead of you, whatever He has predestined, that He has put those lines up and that you are safe in His care. And be confident that no matter what happens, He is God and besides Him there is none other. Let's pray. Please, God, help us. Teach us that it's not by working harder, but it's by depending completely upon you. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Oh, what grace! May we take a breath as your children and sit at your feet in 24. Please, God, bless the reading and the preaching of your word. For your great name we pray. Amen.